Making the Lists. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Black Friend. A mover and shaker, he made the Forbes 30 under 30 list as founder of We Have Stories. His hashtag rent relief campaign, a COVID-19 support effort, raised more than $2 million. He created the largest ever GoFundMe campaign. His hashtag Black Panther challenge raised over $900,000, allowing more than 75,000 children worldwide to see the Black Panther film for free. I'm just a guy who's trying to make the world better, right? To shed light on some of the ways that we need to grow as a society. Wakanda forever. Frederick Joseph coming up on the Janice Adams Show. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. Making the Lists. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Black Friend. A mover and shaker, he made the Forbes 30 under 30 list as founder of We Have Stories, which provides free support to marginalized storytellers and organizations that can shift cultural bias toward better inclusion. He created the largest ever GoFundMe campaign, his hashtag Black Panther Challenge raised over $950,000, allowing more than 75,000 children worldwide to see the Black Panther film for free. How cool is that imaging? His hashtag rent relief campaign, a COVID-19 support effort, raised more than $2 million in aid. His new book is Patriarchy Blues, and he's my guest on the show today. Frederick Joseph, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. With this stellar list of achievements, let's go behind the headlines for a minute. Who is Fred Joseph? And how did you come to be who you are? Quite frankly, it's pretty simple. I'm just a guy who's trying to make the world better, right? Like, I'm literally just someone who has gotten certain opportunities um, to shed light on some of the ways that we need to grow as a society. And I'm trying to do that. Um, And in terms of kind of like how I came to be, you know, I really am just the manifestation of my mother and grandmother's work, uh, quite frankly. You know, everything that they poured into our community, everything that they poured into our neighborhood, everything that they poured into our neighbors is is just what made me, right? Like, you know, I talk about in Patriarchy Blues, how I watched these two Black women who didn't have much. You know, if they had a dollar, 
you know, the community had 90 cents, right? So, um, you know, those lessons, they, they stayed with me. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm just trying to reflect that now in the things that I do. So let me then ask you this with your list of achievements. Why get the blues over patriarchy? And as a young male, isn't patriarchy something of a benefit to you? You know, I think that the second question, the answer to it answers the first. It is a benefit structurally, but it's not a benefit to your soul, right? You know, the same way that the systems and the hatred of white supremacy corrode the souls of white people, so does patriarchy in the souls of, of especially cis, cisgender heterosexual men, right? And others as well who uphold it. You know, like one of the things I talk about in this book is having access to a full array of emotions, right? So while for some men, they have the, the, the benefit of not, say, being held accountable for their misogyny, but they also have the detriment of the fact that, like, since they were young boys, people told them that they couldn't cry. People told them that they couldn't really be full human beings, right? They couldn't, they couldn't do anything that was, quote, unquote, feminine and things of that nature. So in that way, you know, these systems actually are a detriment to us all. We would all be better off for being total human beings, which I don't think we are right now. Mm. I know that you are a marketing maven, that you work hard at it. And I was really struck by, yes, the things that I've read about you, the things that I've read from you, but about your imagery. And in particular, you're very careful in your choices. And I noticed the cover photo where you're wearing that iconic X hat on it. And so we think of Malcolm X. And then um, it's funny when I was reading the intro at first, instead of Frederick Joseph, I said Frederick Douglass. And I'm not uh-huh. upset about thinking about that because <laughs> I'm getting the feeling that with your books, you are helping many other people on the road to freedom as he did. But I'm also thinking about the opening line of your book, which is Mercy, Mercy Me, which then evokes and is an ode to Marvin Gaye. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have a, a wonderful eye and, and sense of uh, nuance. I love that because, you know, my, my image, like, sorry, from, I guess the beginning, um, my, my image is, it, it means a lot to me, right? And, and I think that Black people, you know, broad swath thinking of Black people, we always are thinking about how we look, especially within like systems of white supremacy, because you know, we already have to work twice as hard for most things that we get, right? So then if you don't look a certain way, um, people feel like, well, if you aren't in a suit, people are not going to take you seriously. If your hair is not, you know, a certain way, people aren't going to take you seriously. What does it look like in my mind to help redefine those things, right? You know, it's actually one of the reasons why obviously people can't see me right now, but I'm actually growing my hair um, because as I, as I move into certain spaces, Right. Like as I as I as I build these accolades and things of that nature, I want people to redefine what a successful young black man looks like. Right. I want people to rethink that. Right. I want to see people to see um, the coils in my hair and understand that they all tell a story of success and hard work. Right. And I think that that's important because, you know, I I always say that whether you are in a suit, a hoodie or a T-shirt, you know, that's not going to stop a bullet. 
right? If somebody hates you, they're going to hate you regardless. So I think that that was important for me with this book to almost help kind of like force people to reimagine what a New York Times bestselling author looks like, right? I was like, hey, well, okay. So it, it, I don't have to be in a tweed jacket with, you know, <laughs> whatever. So, with, uh, so that's, with the patches that's on the sleeve. Yeah, 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 <laughs> ex- ex- exactly, exactly. And then in terms of, you know, I, I, I do think that in that way, I, that, that came from the same people who influenced my writing and my thinking, right? Like you look at Bell Hooks, who is one of the most influential people in, in my, just everything, right? Like not just writing, but just my theory of change on the world. Bell Hooks was someone who, for the most part, was always natural, right? Like you see Bell Hooks and she's just wearing what she was wearing, like, just like, you know, you see Bell Hooks in um, different parts of her life and she's, her hair is braided, her hair is, you know what I mean? Like, and this is Bell Hooks, you're talking about hair. You see Toni Morrison, right? Toni Morrison's like, okay, well, I'm one of the best writers on the earth and I'm going to wear dreadlocks, right? Like, and who is going to tell me different? I am Toni Morrison, right? And that means something. You look at Audre Lorde and her short fro, right? Like, you look at the imagery of, you know, the Black Panthers in the 70s and their fros and all these different things, right? These are, you know, you know, their their writing, their work, their books. You know, I, I I've read so much. Angela Davis has influenced me so much in her writing and her just how she carries herself. You know, I already mentioned Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, uh, Malcolm, uh, Alex Hale. There's just so many people. Like, I, you know, I'm I'm gonna be really honest. I don't read a lot of new newer writers. I have some some favorites. A lot of them are my friends, to be quite frank with you. You know, um, there's a phenomenal writer. His name is Dante Stewart or um, Disha Filia, um, Robert Jones Jr. There's a lot of contemporary writers that are great. But my inspiration, you know, definitely comes from kind of, you know, the era of like the Amiri Barakas, if you would. Um, you know, I'm I'm a very 60s to like 90s focused uh person mm-hmm. and what about your music <laughs> well, so music is funny uh, again people can't see i actually have a i have a whole tattoo that has like Thelonious monk and charles mingus and um billy holiday and miles davis and so on and so forth i i grew up on jazz and soul i mean like my one of my uncles, he was a a, a jazz singer. Uh, another one of my uncles, he played trumpet. We have instruments all over our house right now. Um, music, I, like I, I always tell people, like my my books, my writing is more. I, I think of it more musically than like typical writing, right? Which is why I I, I kind of write in a certain style and I and I name things a certain way and I pay homage as if they're albums almost. Mm, I I felt the rhythm of the of the writing i did i did you know it's interesting that you mentioned the imagery of the hair alice walker was speaking to a class of spellman women when she said it but it applied to all of us and she said oppressed hair puts a ceiling on the brain mm-hmm. you know and this whole thing i mean where we have to it's not bad that a congressional act was put through the crown act to say that black Mm -hmm. people are entitled to have black hair, but it is pathetic that it was necessary. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, yes. I, I also thank you for naming Alice Walker. Uh, it's funny. I actually mentioned Alice Walker in Patriarchy Blues. I don't know how I forgot to mention Alice Walker just now and all the the various people. I, Jesus, but there's just I mean, there's so many. But um, but yes, there's there's so many. Yeah. But it's that phrase that really strikes me. Yes, it, it is apps like that's such a that's such a perfect analysis, kind of to the to, to just to the ways in which black people in our bodies are so constantly oppressed, right? And like, you know, you're looking at our lips are too big, our noses are too big, our our hair uh uh is it is it the right for C for B our, you know, it's always something and I and I think that some of our work, right? Some of our work is freeing our bodies to be what they are and be loved as they are. Um, and, and I, and I do think that part of that is, it's funny because I, I, I do write about a, a little bit of that in patriarchy blues in that I have multiple sclerosis and I, and I, I work out very often and I think people assume when they look at me, they assume certain things. And, and I, I think I'm spending the next year or two helping people reimagine what they assume about me and other people. Right. Um, like when people are like, oh my God, you, I'm about, I'm about six, three. So people are like, oh my God, you. You must be in the greatest health ever. I'm actually in horrible health, right? I have a chronic illness um, and I struggle deeply with it. And I wrote about it in this book so that people could start reimagining even that, right? Because it directly connects to how Black people are seen as like these, you know, these, these, these mules and mandingos and, and all these different, you know, things that are less than humanity, right? And I also right, wrote about it in, in my letter to, to, you know, my late friend Chadwick Bozeman. Right. Like how when when Chadwick was, you know, in what we thought was good health, people lauded him, people, you know, people um, fawned over him. Right. Because we were so used to um, doing that with young, handsome black men. Right. But it was so disgusting how quickly we not only throw away black humanity, but we almost or we almost try to erase it, right? When Chadwick became sick and we didn't know, people made fun of him, right? Oh, goodness, I I didn't know he was ill until after he died. But what touched me so was to find that he was going to visit the children in the hospital who had cancer. And so in my newsletter with that, I, I included the picture of the children who had dressed up as Black Panther in his in his honor. And also I had done a show where I I had been awarded an honorary doctorate. And so people had said, well, you know, are you going to do something about that? And so I chose the speeches of people who'd been awarded honoraries at the same time I was. And his was one of those speeches that I chose at Howard University um, because he was so precise and so gracious and talking about his meeting, his hero, Ali, but also then talking about um, the gift that he could leave to others about what integrity means, what, what being in your truth means, and really paying the price for it, but also reaping the rewards of it. And I was thrilled that in that brief, phenomenal life that that was the gift that he he chose to to leave behind you know that brings us to you having 
raised this extraordinary amount of money to gift children worldwide the ability to see Black Panther, children who may not otherwise have gotten to see that movie and to change their own images of what a superhero looks like and then discover what a real superhero, namely Chadwick Boseman, looked like. Um, how'd you get the idea to do that? <sighs> I, so I am much older than my younger brother. My mother had me at 18. She had my younger brother at about 45 or something like that. So my, 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 my younger brother was at my apartment and um, we were playing Jenga. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jenga. Um, we were playing Jenga and he was about seven at the time, maybe six. He was cheating. He was cheating at Jenga. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so I, so I, I, I remember um, turning on, I'm not playing with you anymore. So I turned on the TV there's a commercial for Black Panther and he's staring at it. I'm like, and I'm, I'm like chiding him for cheating. I'm like, you were cheating. He's not paying attention. I'm like, why aren't you paying attention to me? And I look over and he's staring at this, this, this trailer for the Black Panther film with this amount of awe I had never seen in my life, right? Like the way he was looking was almost as if he was watching himself, right? And, and I asked like, you know, and again, I have wanted to see Black Panther. I'm a big comic nerd, but I was just like, hey, what, what's up? You're, you know, he's like, I've never seen somebody who looks like me like that. And that in that moment, one, I was hurt because I thought about the fact that I hadn't seen it either, you know? And then I said, we should do something about that, right? Like, obviously the film is coming out and my brother will see it because we have the privilege and the access that we can go see a film. When I was growing up, we didn't have the privilege and access to go see films. And I remember being in that space. I was in that space most of my life. So I said, what does it look like to get those kids in those seats. So I asked a few friends uh, if they would, you know, I, I was like, hey, I'll put $500 on it. Um, does anybody else have any money? And my mother actually said to me, she said, you know, <laughs> verbatim, she says, boy, aren't you a marketer? I was like, yeah, I, I don't, yes. She's like, so why are you asking 10 people for $20 when you could be asking 10 million people for $20? And I said, you know what? You're right. And I just kind of, and I, I formulated the ideas for the campaign and PR and all this stuff. And I just went to work and um, it, it was a lot of effort, but I, I woke up one morning and I saw in the news, there were, like I literally saw in the news how much I raised. I was still working a full-time job. I, I was paying attention, obviously, but I wasn't like able to see them out. I, I literally went to sleep and woke up and I think Chelsea Clinton had shared it. And I went, I went to bed and had raised like $9,000. I woke up and had raised like 50000 at that point, just between me falling asleep and waking up. Um, and it was in the news. And I was just like, oh, we, we've got something on our hands here. <laughs> we had something on our hands here for sure. When we come back, more with our guest, Frederick Joseph. He is the author of the new book, Patriarchy Blues. More after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Frederick Joseph, author of the book, Patriarchy Blues, New York Times bestselling author of The Black Friend, 
Forbes 30 Under 30, creator of the largest ever GoFundMe campaign, hashtag Black Panther Challenge, uh, for which he raised over $950,000 and allowed more than 75,000 children worldwide to see the Black Panther movie for free. His hashtag rent relief campaign, a COVID-19 support effort, raised more than $2 million to aid others. Frederick Joseph, I mean, what you've accomplished is, is so extraordinary, but I love the fact that what I'm referring to you're having accomplished is so much directed towards what has happened for others because of what you've accomplished. So thinking about you and this book, thinking about that, those accomplishments, I was really struck by the chapter, If These Hands Could Talk. Would you read to us from that now, please? If these hands could talk, I imagine most people have only been in two or three physical fights in their life. Each one of them was over something foolish, something not worth it. They always are. But occasionally, you find people like myself, people who have built themselves a home atop the mountain of nothingness created by violence. As far back as we know, violence has been lauded and craved by the masses. From Achilles to Ali, we're drawn to and celebrate the most primal aspects of human nature. Big, strong, and often angry men mutilating one another. We wait in line to see films in which the stars are blood and mayhem. But what they never tell you is that unlike the dramatization found in film and television, a fight usually lasts no more than a minute and death takes but a second. We romanticize and normalize then we ask, why? The fracture is why. They never talk about the fracture. The way the violence splits you in half and you're never truly the same after. I know the fracture. I've lived it, felt it, given it, been broken by it. We don't talk about the fracture. By the time I was 30, I'd been in at least 40 physical fights and I cried after nearly every single one of them. My tears had nothing to do with the outcome of the fights. To my credit, I've only lost about two fight fair fights in my life. One loss was in middle school to a friend I decided to start making fun of because I thought doing so would make the popular kids stop picking on me. The other time was to a guy in college who tried to use, who I tried to use as a prop so I could impress a young woman. In both instances, I rightfully got my ass beat. I don't believe it's coincidence that the only two fights I've ever started also happen to be the only two fights I've ever lost. Looking back, I'm happy I got my ass kicked. You'd be surprised how many life lessons can be found while being punched in the face. You can break open a door with a hammer, but you are meant to use a key. If all you have is your fist, everything looks like something to punch. Violence perpetrated by cisgender heterosexual men is an especially deadly epidemic. But as with any virus, you can't eradicate something unless you know where it started. As individuals and a community, cisgender heterosexual men need to identify how we are violent, as there are physical, verbal, and mental manifestations. This is the work of protecting those around us. Then we need to look at the root of why we are violent. This is the work of healing ourselves. Working on why is the most difficult fight you'll ever have. But once you do that, you'll hold weapons that will truly help you win, maybe even help you rest. I'm tired of losing the fight. I'm tired of losing the fight. 
my goodness, coming of age, coming of mind, going from that kind of toxic masculinity to a healthy masculinity. How do you define healthy masculinity? Healthy masculinity. I, I think healthy masculinity also exists in unison with femininity. I don't think that you can have a masculinity that isn't also feminine that is healthy, right? Because I, I think that it's important that people have the stereotypical aspects, you know, of femininity, being soft, being open, being being thoughtful, being caring, you know, being loving and also being able to be loved. Because those things help balance what has become stereotypical masculinity of being you know, overly decisive at certain moments, being rageful at times, being angry, being stoic, being hard, right? You know, I I think that there's a time and a place for everything. And sometimes at that time and place, two things need to meet at once, right? So what does it look like? You know, I I, I think oftentimes, and I I, I said this a few times in the book, what 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 does it look like to have young men, especially young Black men, who are rightfully angry, right? You know, James Baldwin told us that we have a right, we have a right to our rage in this country. But what happens when we don't know what to do with that rage? What happens when that rage, we don't have access to tears? So when we don't have access to tears or the ability to hug or the ability to, to hold somebody, we hurt them. We heard everything around us if we don't have access to those other things. So I guess, you know, the long-winded way of saying that, you know, like healthy masculinity is, is dynamic. Hmm. You know, and I'm really struck by that because that is so societal. It's not even, it's, it's not particularly a Black thing. Is American society. Um, you see two men on the street, and yes, some will shake hands, but there's like this little punching thing that they do because if if heaven forbid they hugged each other, you know, the sky would fall chicken little. And um, or the the way they treat men who are gay as though it's a violation of manhood to be gay. Um, James Baldwin was one of the most extraordinary men I'd ever met. And he was a gay man. Um, The black male preachers who talk about abortion and they go on and on about women and that, and don't look into the mirror to understand that the way white American women have gotten abortions for centuries was by saying yes. a black man raped her, she'd get his her abortion and he'd get lynched. So this not knowing ourselves and not being in possession of one's full self is very much this American construct. And yes, when America gets a cold, Black people get pneumonia. You know, you're 100% right. This is not, 
this is not this is not something that's exclusive to black men, right? This this rage. But I do think that one thing that we do have to identify is that white rage and black rage do not exist in the same space and they're not for the same reasons, right? Black rage is because white rage has taken from us, has harmed us, right? Like I am rageful over what happened in Buffalo, but I have the ability to place my rage in my pen and write, right? I have my ability to place my rage in a run with my dog, or even place my rage in my tears as my fiance and I lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and wonder what we're gonna do about this. Whereas white rage is what caused us to be in those positions. It was white rage that drove a hundred plus miles to Buffalo from Conklin, New York and took our elders, right? And I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, this book and many books, the, the, the work of the work of Baldwin, the work of uh, uh, Alice Walker, the, the work of, you know, so many, so many people. It's actually a lot of white men who need to be reading it. Right. Because that rage that we're talking about is 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 it's the books are almost a mirror. Right. Right. Like I, I've seen a lot of people say of my book, oh, Patriarchy Blues, this is a book for black men. I said, no, this is a book for society. This is a book for mankind, because this book is not just a matter of me. Reflect- yes, I am a black man, but I'm not a black man only talking to black men because I'm a black man. I'm a black man holding up a mirror to both myself and others. Right. And it probably is more advantageous for some of those others to actually see that mirror because they've never seen a mirror. Right. So, yeah, I, anyway, sorry, I went on a... <laughs> no, 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 I, I'm, I'm hearing you, uh, I'm feeling you, I am also thinking in terms of this difference, and I didn't mean to... I, no, not you. No, 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 I understand, but I want to be clear with the audience as well. I do not put Black rage and this manufactured white rage that we're going through now in the same category, because they're not. The white rage that we're seeing it is people enraged because they don't have title to things they never should have had title to in the first place. The black rage is people who have been maligned by that, who are saying, this is year 403, 404, 405. When do we get out of this? When do you grow up? so that we can all get out of this. That is an entirely different thing. And it is so different that we don't even think to mention the rage of the indigenous people because it is so unspeakable that no unspeakable that no words can really, you know, capture what was done to those people. So no, I, I do not want to mistake it all for the same thing individuals may be enraged because societally what was done to a poor white man in Appalachia who was forced to be in a mine for his life and um, and even if he wanted to get out of it, he wasn't going to get out of it. I can empathize with that man. I cannot empathize, however, with that man if he took his rage out on the black miner who was also there at the same time. And I think we have to be, we have to be precise about that. But 
when one of the things that, uh, well, my, when I talk to you, my head is just buzzing <laughs> with a couple of things. On one hand, I want to ask you about the freedom to get beyond that. But before I do, I'm really struck by what you mentioned in terms of the synergy that has to exist between men and women, period, as two parts of a whole, nature having defined that. And I was going to leave this for the next segment, but I'd love it if you would read from that chapter, Black Women Are Not Your Mules. Absolutely. Black women are not your mules. I take a personal interest in many issues, and one of them is protecting and supporting Black women. When I was growing up, my mother often spoke of how important it is for Black people to protect one another. If we don't have each other, who do we have? Who cares about Black people but Black people? But my mother and grandmother leaned into that idea. The other Black children in the neighborhood could come to our house and get food. If a Black person was homeless, my mother and grandmother would find some old clothes to give them. And despite our family not having much ourselves, if a Black person in the neighborhood needed help in any other way, they did their, they did their best to provide it. But sadly, this was a light I didn't necessarily live in when I was younger, largely because I didn't see Black men in my neighborhood carry themselves in the same way my mother and grandmother did. The Black men in, in the neighborhood may have had each other's backs, but that solidarity rarely seemed to extend to Black women. In fact, I distinctly remember times when men would catcall and disrespect my mother, even as she would thoughtfully ask them to stop. In one instance, when I was likely about seven years old, a group of men followed my mother and me down the block as we were walking into the store. They were whistling and shouting things at her that make my fist clench as I think about them. At one point, my mother turned back and attempted to make a case for them to stop because she was with me. I'm with my son. Can't you respect that and leave me alone? They didn't care. Eventually, we reached the grocery store and stayed inside much longer than ever before. And my mother waited in hope that the men weren't waiting outside for her. Fortunately, one of the store owners could tell something was wrong and walked us home. While those type of men weren't the rule of the neighborhood, they also weren't the exception. I always knew I didn't want to be one of those men. But the reality is that when I was young, I didn't do much to combat them either. Black women have not only risen to the occasion of saving themselves and those around them, but they've done so while bolstering themselves within systems that were designed for them to fail. One of these systems is higher education, in which Black women have become the most accomplished group in America. But as was the case with Michelle Obama, when Black women are in positions of power, privilege, and access, they aren't praised for their ingenuity or their strength. Instead, they are too often demonized and met with vitriol for all of those whom they historically and currently work to liberate. America wants Black women to put on a cape and constantly save the rest of us, without caring that the very people they are saving are their kryptonite. Black women saving the day is not sustainable, but more important, it's not fair. If there's a road to be a better, stronger, and more equitable democracy and society, it can't be made on the backs of Black women. Rather, we will know it's possible when Black women feel the weight on their shoulders lifted. Heard that or read that. Rather, we will know it's possible when Black women feel the weight on their backs lifted. I, I just, 
you know, on one level, I said, I wish I had, as a Black woman, I wish I had heard that decades ago. On another level, I'm just thinking about how often today, with your saying, it's not only not right, it's not fair. I can't tell you as a Black woman in this day and age, how many times I've been told that the salvation for this American problem is going to be Black women. As though, you know, and once again, the people who are saying it, they mean it in a complimentary way. They, and I'm not gonna, you know, ignore that. They do mean it in a healing way and they do mean it in a way that says, we don't like the way somebody like Katanji Brown Jackson was treated. We, we do not, and, and I, I have heard this from people who even actively did something to express and to convey their opposition to that. But at the same point, it is saying to, I love the way you say it, your kryptonite, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it, it is asking us to solve something we did not create and shoulder something that it is the responsibility of those who have created it, continue to perpetuate it and benefit from it. Once again, they are being gotten off the hook for it by saying, I'm supposed to solve the problem for them. And, you know, wow. It's such a, it's such a loaded thing. You know, I, I, Black women have been at the center and the foundational pieces of progress in the United States, basically since the inception of this country. And you take a look at what Black women have gotten for that, and it's not much. Right. You know, people, you know, people will say, you know, let's let's take even let's take Brianna Taylor. Right. The late, late Brianna Taylor, who was murdered in her bed as she slept by the police. I wondered as as all these people. Right. During the 2020 election, the 2020 primaries, excuse me said, oh, listen to Black women, listen to Black women, listen to Black women, listen to Black women. Where were those people to protect and defend a Black woman such as Breonna Taylor? Because many of them were silent, right? Many of them were silent. Where are the policies, where are the structures that reflect a nation that has been fortified and saved by Black women? Because I don't see them, right? I don't I don't see those policies in the DNA of this country. This doesn't feel like a country that's constantly saved by black women. Though they though, though the country will gladly put a spotlight on the glad the country will never give black women the mic though. Right? I read a piece in Publishers Weekly written by Errol McDonald, executive vice president for Random House. And he said I am not your BIPOC. When I hear you say that, and I hadn't thought to say it this way before, but I want to say as a Black woman, I am not your mammy. I am not here to comfort you at the expense of my own children. I am not here 
to raise you because your parents won't do the job. That's not really. And I'm not here to be patted on the head and told that, you know, I'm the only one who did this for you as though you ever reciprocated for me or for my children. You know, it. I hadn't thought of it that way and nor did I plan to say it that way, but you're making me say, no, I am not your mammy. And the tragedy that this country still wants one. You know, I got a, a great deal of my, just j- the, the things that live in my body um, and my soul come from watching my grandmother and my mother toil, struggle, right? My grandmother, she worked, she, I mean, she worked just <sighs> till the very, the very end of her life as hard as she could while almost feeling like, um, kind of like I, I think of the imagery of like sand someone holding sand at a beach and slipping through your fingers, right? Because you're, you're not really holding anything. And I, and I think that that's how Black women are treated in this nation, right? You, 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 you claim that you're giving them something, but it's not, isn't, there's nothing solid there. It's just, it's, it's things that slip through the fingers, right? Like, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, Black women obviously being one of the most educated groups in the country and the most college graduates in the country um, percentage-wise of any group. And also, you have to then talk about student loan debt, right? And you have to talk about the fact that we did, we, meaning, you know, our community and specifically Black women in this context, saved the the 2020 election, right? The most, the most consistent votes for the Democratic Party come from the Black community. Last election, it was over 90% by Black women and over 87% by Black men. The drop-off from there goes into about the 60s with all other communities. And like I said, there's nothing to show for that, right? And you know, I, I believe that the head of the NAACP said recently, the policies that are being uh, proposed right now, potentially, the things that might potential ha- potentially happen from this administration are like dropping a bucket of ice water on a forest fire when it comes to the black community. And that's verbatim. That's that's a verbatim quote. And 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 that's unfair because we have we not only built the nation, we save it on a regular basis. Black women lead that charge. <laughs> when we come back, more with my guest Frederick Joseph. He is the author of the book Patriarchy Blues. More here on the Janice Adams show after the break. I am a 28-year-old Black male who enjoys reading your writing, came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities? 
Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America. And you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Frederick Joseph. He is the author of Patriarchy Blues. He wrote an earlier book as well, The Black Friend, which was for younger readers, for uh, YA readers. But now he's taking on these issues Issues that he's taken on with his life, with his mission, but for adult readers as well. And, um, you know, one of the, in reading the book, there was a beautiful story that you told and metaphor about what we can learn from zebras and ostriches. (laughs) Would you tell that story? Yes, yes. I can actually pull it up and right here because I want to get the quote correct. Thinking about the necessity of fellowship in this fight for freedom, I'm reminded of the zebra and the ostrich. Not long ago, I learned that zebras have a keen, have keen eyesight, but a poor sense of smell, while ostriches have a keen sense of smell, but poor, but poor eyesight. In understanding their individual weaknesses and the constant threat of falling prey to one of the many predators on the savannah, they often stay close to use one another's strength to help them survive. You know, I, I, I thought that that was an important thing to point out because there's much that we can learn as humans, as a society, from the other groups of animals around us, right? Who oftentimes, quite frankly, are getting it done better than us right <laughs> it's, it's they figured it out <laughs> they figured out some stuff right. it seems that they they have figured it out right um and i just thought that was powerful when i learned that because i'm like that is the necessity the symbiotic relationship is what we actually should have right we were never meant in my opinion as beings to harm one another in the way that we do, to fight one another in the way that we do, to hate one another in the way that we do. We were meant to work together collectively for our common needs, the common good. And we've gotten so far away from that. What strikes me with your metaphor as well is that in the United States, we love to talk about difference. And I, what is the difference? I mean, It's not genetic. It's not biological. It literally is a whole pathology of difference that was created deliberately on the basis of skin color so that one group of people could continue to oppress another. That was its function. And now it has magnified and taken on, you know, so much that we don't like to say it, but the Nazi final solution the proponents of that said that they took their inspiration from the way the United States treated black and brown people. 
in the United States. So, and anyone who, who doesn't want to believe that, please just look it up and, and you'll see. In fact, I'll put a link to it on, on my website. Here we are creating difference for no particular reason when the ostriches and the zebras truly are different species who have figured out what cooperation and collaboration mean and the necessity of it. And that was just so striking to me. You know, from the moment I first read about you and read about the book and everything, I kind of knew, um, and I don't mean to embarrass you, but I knew that you were someone to learn from. <laughs> Okay. About that. <laughs> and someone that we could all learn from, whether it is your approach to business, your approach to marketing, your mother's reminder of how of what you can do with your marketing, <laughs> uh, your the vision that you bring to things, imagination, the sense of possibility. So in the in the little time that we have left, um, you know, we talk about patriarchy patriarchy blues, but at the same point, you've written this book to change the dynamic, to change, you know, what that means. So what does business mean to you? You know, that's interesting. I, I think business, a lot of people see business through the lens of kind of classist structures, right? Like someone has to be dominating someone else. And I, and I don't think that. I think of business as endeavor, right? I, I, I think of business as imagination, right? The, the, the potential of something that isn't becoming something that is. And, and my sense of business, my sense of possibility all comes from collaboration, right? Like when I talk about anything that I've done, even in my books, quite frankly, my my first editor before it ever goes to any of my my paid editors is my fiance right like you know we are a household business right you know i think of i think of business as a chance for all of us to work together you know so i i, I don't know I, I maybe i'm i'm circumventing an uh, actual answer but i think of business as many things and above all i think of it as the possibility of endeavor and you know, your extraordinary vision and in creating the Black Panther Challenge and in using your business and marketing acumen that way, or the rent relief um, campaign that you did to help other people with their apartments. I, I was looking at it and saying these were campaigns in my mind that seemed to shift the idea of individual wealth as determinant of power to the power of collective wealth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm someone who very, very firmly believes in everyone having, I, I don't think that in a nation or even in a world with as much as this world has to offer, anyone should ever be without. And I don't just mean like basic necessities. I, I mean, without joy even, right? You know, I, I think when I started the Black Panther Challenge, a lot of people said, well, kids need pencils, kids need, kids need book bags, so on and so forth. I'm like, kids also need joy. 
right? And I don't, and I think that we should be a society that baseline does what, what is necessary to provide all basic necessities for a total human experience. In the little time we have left, is there anything that uh, you would like to add that I haven't thought to ask you? <sighs> I, you know, I, I, I think that if I was to add anything, I lean into the possibility for this nation, right? I think that that's why I continue to do the work that I'm trying to do. Possibility for this nation and our society, right? You know, I, I think even looking at where we are right now versus where we were some time ago, I do have hope, right? You know, like even though we are struggling with certain things, let's take student debt that I mentioned earlier as an example, there's hope in the fact that from what I'm hearing, the Biden administration is going to cancel $10,000 potentially, right? There's, there's hope in in some of the smallest places and in some of the biggest places as well, but some of the smallest places, we just have to look for it. So I think I would add that, that, you know, I, I, a lot of the work I'm, I'm doing, a lot of the things I'm seeing, they're all rooted in the hope of what we can be. And um, what are you going to do tomorrow? <laughs> um, tomorrow, I'm going to be back to writing. I'm, <laughs> I, have some, I have some deadlines to meet. So I'll be, I'll be writing, writing, writing. And we will be reading, reading, reading. Frederick Joseph, thank you so much for joining me here on the show today. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. My thanks to Frederick Joseph and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For links to my guest, his work, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Robayo, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. <laughs>